0: You're listening to T.I.P.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. On today's show, I have a good friend and major contributor to the Bitcoin space, and he goes by NVK. NVK is the founder of the popular hardware wallet company, Coldcard. Coldcard is known for having an ultra-secure Bitcoin wallet, and on today's show, we cover some really interesting topics. At the start, we get into a fascinating discussion about entropy in the elliptical key generation process and why it's important to Bitcoin security. We talk about how the Bitcoin network could be hardened using HF frequencies. We then cover what things might look like with big tech companies starting to enter the space like Intel and potentially smartphone manufacturers. These are just some of the fascinating topics that we cover in this episode. So get ready, sit back and enjoy a ton of information coming from Cold Cards NVK.
0: You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now, for your host, Preston Pish.
1: All right. So, NVK, this has been a conversation that I'm kind of blown away that it's taken us this long to put it down on the recorder. But, man, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. You're such a wealth of knowledge. So, I'm sure this is just going to be a really fun conversation for both of us.
2: Hey man, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's one of my favorite pods.
1: This is where I want to start this conversation. (laughs) Entropy dice. I find this just fascinating that you have a product for this. And like, I mean, I understand that just the stupid basics, like at the most elementary level of why these exist, and it gets into elliptical curve key generation, right? But help us just understand what that buzzword even means, right? The fact that you went out and created a product around this, and why there needs to be a product around it, in your opinion. And then, lastly, not that I'm trying to like give you all these questions at once, but is this how you generate your own keys? Yeah. So this is it's funny.
2: I mean, no wonder you said that I was going to be surprised by the first question. That, <laughs> that's starting like right there. So. Cryptography, like especially public cryptography, requires a very, very big number, right? A random big number. And that's the basis that you build all your math on top to create your secrets, right? To sort of operate on top of your secret. Actually, let me backtrack this a bit. So a password, right? A password is not really the basis of any secret of the information that you're trying to store. You know, a password is just how you are encapsulating something encrypted, right? And that's the secret that sort of like breaks that, that sort of shield out to see something that's inside. In Bitcoin, the secret is the money, right? So the stakes are much higher because if somebody can break that, because they know the public part already, they already know the information. It's already out there. So if somebody could break or reverse that, right? And find the original secret they can spend your money. So in Bitcoin, the secret or the quality of the entropy that the secret has is like one of the most important things. It's the basis of everything security wise in Bitcoin, self custody, right? What happens is how do you create a random number? It sounds like an easy problem, but it's not, right? Because if you are a enterprise solution right you know and they've been having to create big numbers big entropy for you know like 50 years and you know that's how they protect banks and that's how they protect airplanes and all this stuff so what they do is they will use this fips is a certification right by the nist you're a serviceman you would know and they certify the little tiny computers that generate like the gates on a chip that, that generate that random number, right? Randomly. And, you know, some of them we use different, different things. Some of them we use heat. Some of them we use noise. Any kind of noise because noise is entropy, right? Now, it gets really tricky because most things that you believe are ent- entropically good actually are not. If you observe them for long enough, you find patterns, right? And if you know those patterns, you could try to reverse engineer which number was created. So, it's a massive problem. So much so that, like, when you're talking about true deep, deep secrets, like the army sort of like main secrets, they will use atomic decay as a means of finding true entropy, is one of the best sources of it. But, you know, that's completely unrealistic for the average person to have a, <laughs> some apparatus that measures that at home. So, what do we do? In Bitcoin, we go and we have very good, well reviewed crypto libraries that try to do a very good job at like spotting bad sort of means of generating that entropy or generating that secret right but you still have to feed it something right on a computer you're going to feed some of the noise from the computer and you know bitcoin core is going to use like some well sort of researched libraries to do that right but you can't really fully trust that either right because you don't know if the computer is not lying to you this is the biggest problem that bitcoiners have is that like do I have one here I can't really trust the device, right? That's the whole goal is not to trust the device. So what we do is we essentially take the entropy from dice. So you throw dice, right? And out of 99 dice throws, you have 256 bits of entropy, right? Which is the full amount of entropy you need for a Bitcoin private key. And you know, cold card can generate the entropy for you, we do a very good job at that, but Having the option for you to be able to enter your own de-risks one us, there is less interest in actors to try to compromise us as a company, right? Because now they know that you know most users are not going to trust us anyways. And then the next step is, okay, great. So I'm entering the dice entropy into the device. How do I know that the device is showing me the correct entropy? Is not just lying to me about the dice that I threw for it. We have a companion script that you can run on, say, a Tails CD or some other machine, and you can enter at the same time. And because this is deterministic, you can actually generate the same seed and you can actually compare. So you can validate the device is doing what it claims it does. And we are getting at a level of security that, like, it beats almost anything that a state actor has, right? With all their disposable by just being like, honest, verifiably honest. By being
1: really rudimentary in the way that you're doing it, I think is really kind of the simplicity in using the dice is actually just, you can't replicate that in any kind of way, right? Yeah, I mean, good luck
2: trying to replicate 99 dice throws, right? Yeah. I mean, even if the dice were biased, you're still fine.
1: Yeah, no, this is something that whenever I was studying for an interview I was doing with quantum computing and when i was studying this i realized that really kind of the the most vulnerable part of your private keys and your bitcoin is in that key generation process that you just kind of really went into a lot of depth describing and so i realized that it came down to the random numbers that are being generated by the computer and we'll say random in quotes because like you so eloquently Pointed out, there's ways to kind of reverse engineer that pattern that kind of pops out of the way that those random numbers are being generated. And without, you know, a lot of effort being placed into making sure that the number that's coming up with, and you're you're saying, What how big is how many digits is this big number, this quote unquote big number that's being generated?
2: It's big. It's it'll be like how many digits would you say? I don't know.
1: It's two hundred fifty-six bits. It's two hundred fifty-six so, bits. Okay. So, yeah, like, if it's, you had, it's, it's a huge number. So on the dice, you're dealing with nine-digit dice or ten-digit dice, including the no, zero six, or six.
2: Six. Six. Digits. Yeah, it's a okay. d six standard dice.
1: Okay, just a standard die. Okay.
2: Yeah. Remember, right? Because it compounds, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have this. It's kind of cool, and I'm, I'm very lazy. So, and I didn't want to throw like you know dice like a hundred times. So we found the smallest dice that could possibly be boxed. They're like five millimeters big, mm-hmm. and it comes in a bag of one hundred. So you mm. just throw it once. To just throw throw it
1: one time, and then and then what just are you input doing? You the just, numbers. You're just randomly selecting the numbers. You're no,
2: right. no, you, no, never. Humans cannot do entropy. If I tell you to give me a random number, it's probably not random. So you literally read each dice and you input
1: each well, digit And what well, I guess what I was getting at was you're just. I'm gonna use this word randomly, just grabbing whatever dice off the yeah. table, and you're just kind of compiling those numbers. That's right. Ninety-nine of them, six-digit numbers, and that is how you're coming up with your key generation. So, is this how you did your own?
2: I mean, it depends, right? So, I don't believe there is like a single solution to rule them all, right? So, you know, I have many harder wallets, right? Some are deep cold, some are semi-cold, some are operational. You know, for an operational wallet, the the one you use every day, you know, with like smaller funds, I don't care. I'll just sort of let the device generate it. I'll give myself less work. But the the idea is to really trust minimize it because nothing is proof, right? It's always just trust minimizing is the goal of our company.
1: All right. I had to ask that first because when, <laughs> when I've observed some of yours, and I have your your block clock sitting here, there's so many things that we can talk about. But this is the one that I've just always kind of smiled at and just had deep admiration for the level to which you are willing to go with your products and with your company to ensure that people's security is at the highest level possible if they choose to take it there. right? And I just have a deep admiration for that. But Here's my next. When did you come into the space? Because I'm not. I know you came in very early, but when did you come into this space? And then I want to kind of talk about how you build a company around it.
2: I mean, coming into the space in the early days is like a complicated question because it's like I got into the space when the Satoshi paper came out on Slashdot, and then it's like this is some insane idea, right? Like, I mean, I still to this day I just laugh if anybody pre certain pre 2012. Sort of like said that this thing is like a certainty. Like 2010, it's like, okay, great. Like some Satoshi guy wrote some paper that's very interesting and there is absolutely no way this thing is going to work. Right. But it was very interesting and it was interesting to see the stuff starting to form and like, and people start to use. I mean, our first project was launched, I think, uh, end of 2011. You know, we were still working in other companies and sort of like still doing other stuff. And, you know, but first little sort of like, like attempt at doing something in Bitcoin, I think might have been early, yeah, like late 2011 kind of thing. And, and uh, what was it the was, product? It was definitely early days. Oh, it was a BTClook.com. It was a block explorer oh. for Bitcoin transactions. In those days, the block the entire blockchain was maybe like eleven gigabytes or something, or thirty gigabytes. I can't remember. It could fit in a in a normal computer RAM. So we ran the whole blockchain Redis and you could like do all these cool like visualizations of it. It was fun. It was the project that we did to sort of understand Bitcoin.
1: When did you decide that you were going to do the hardware wallet? The
2: first thing that sort of like and this is me and Doc Hex. My co founder, we were sort of like looking at this stuff as like, okay, great, you know, money is in the computer. If I send money, it goes to another computer. There's no middleman. Wonderful. Bitcoin is for payments. (laughs) You know, so we created like uh, this Bitcoin debit cards and Bitcoin payment terminals. And we started sort of deploying them around the world in like late uh, 2012, kind of thing. And you know, there were kind of like PCI certified payment terminals that we sort of got them done and the hardware was ours. And it was a little too early. <laughs> 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 but we had to essentially be the back end for all this stuff. Right. So we started creating the the hardware secure security modules, right? So the HSM servers, because neither Tails nor the other company that I forget now the name had any servers, any security servers that could do the bitcoin curve the bitcoin curve is not fips certifiable maybe it is now i don't even know anymore uh, It wasn't at the time and you know we needed secure servers and then we sort of ran with that and then the company started to become more like of a online wallet solution and then essentially like big go before big go it was the back end for a lot of exchanges then we sort of decided that one that was not profitable enough and two, was not like i didn't want to be a centralized point of failure Yeah, receiving letters and things was not my shtick. So uh, we move on to focus only
0: on hardware. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show.
1: Back then, I know whenever I first came into the space, like there really wasn't a lot of confidence that you could scale so that you could get to the instant payment portion that you have with Lightning now. And building like the product that you're talking about, I'm sure the biggest concern really had to have been wrapped around this idea that you needed Ten minutes on average for just the clearance. Assuming you can get into the next block. So, how are you guys thinking about that at that point in time in the business and thinking about how it could possibly scale? Like, what were your thoughts at the time?
2: It's kind of funny. So, we let the let's see if I have a card here. I actually do. So, these were the the debit cards. You could essentially there were a few things, right? Because the cards didn't have a private key in themselves. They were essentially just authentication to get into the big system. You could do user to user instant transfers, right? If they were within the the same system. If you were paying from another wallet to the terminal, the merchant had an option to choose how many confirmations he wanted. We explained right, that like zero confirmations concerns. It's not your Bitcoin until it's confirmed. (laughs) But you know, people buying coffee and stuff, who cares, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like, what, are you going to lose a dollar? Somebody tried to do a double spend attack at a merchant, it's kind of unrealistic. And this is before transaction malleability, too. So it was possible to do that kind of stuff. And then, you know, that's when some of the poop coins. (laughs) And, uh, you know, in my mind at that time was like, okay, great. So you have like Bitcoin 10 minutes a block. And then you have, say, Litecoin, right? Which had enough security at the time. I think it was like two, three minutes a block. I can't remember anymore you know, it was enough. So like, you know, maybe use this stuff for payments that are instant, maybe use this stuff for the other, but people are really going to want to store their money in Bitcoin. So we just sort of like gave options to the people to choose because a lot of people were using those terminals, not for retail. They're using those terminals as a means of being sort of Western union transfers, right? Because you could print paper wallets, you could sort of onboard new Bitcoiners into the system. Or withdraw, really. You could get a whole private key out in a QR from the machine. It was a mixed bag, right? Because it's easy now to see Bitcoin as a store of value, right? But in those days, maybe I think like the only person I remember saying that was like Trace Mayer.
1: Trace Mayer, yeah.
2: (laughs) Everybody else was saying Bitcoin is payments, right? And and you know, it's hard because it was just so unclear what he best did as a utility.
1: Yeah. No, you're right. Trace was pretty much the only guy out there saying those things. So, what time frame did you develop the calculator? I love this design. I'm just gonna tell you right now. Like this is the best design ever that you have. This hardware <laughs> wall looking like a calculator. When did you, know, you produce this?
2: Okay, so OpenTime must have been 2016, 2017. I think we launched card around 2018, yeah. 2019. Around that time, it sounds right uh, because that's when we closed our other system. Finally, no. The system was close, 2016, maybe. Anyways, we were in flux, even with our own stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, you know, I, I was not very sort of satisfied with the options in the market. And we created this just for ourselves, really. And then there was enough demand and we sort of, you know, started to make it into a product. Open Dime was the product that the company was making and selling at that yeah, time. Yeah. But we figured out, hey, you know, we need a good harder wallet that respects certain principles that we like. It's our preference, our sets of trade-offs. And cold card was born.
1: And by the way, I just heard American HODL paid Peter McCormick with one of the open dimes on his show just this week. It's uh, hilarious. <laughs>
2: I mean, people, it's, it's surprising, like the amount of those devices in the market and how much yeah. people actually use them. It's instant. It's already confirmed, right? It's a pre-confirmed UTXO. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: So, like for people that don't understand, that's like an unspent Bitcoin mm-hmm. is in there. Right, and you can trust when you're receiving. Anyway, it's just fun.
1: It's awesome. It's awesome. How about the clock? So first, the first question I got for you is: What did you do when you were watching Jack Dorsey testifying before Congress? And there's your clock behind him. Like you had to just been laughing. Like what was your reaction when you were watching this?
2: It was funny because I think a year or two prior to that, I had dinner with him, and you know, met the guy first time was sort of out of the blue super nice guy and you know we gave him some some products block clock didn't exist yet uh, at least not the the mini and then you know sort of time passes and you know, all sort of exchanging messages here and there and uh you know i'm watching the thing and it's like
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't even He's, know he had it
2: no i, I had no idea <laughs> it was it was totally like it was a funny surprise it was funny because you know, like, what a better way of sending a message to those guys than, like, look, there is like Sats and it's Sats dollar, like you know, like I it's know. not that—that's you cannot ask for anything better than some crazy person to create a conspiracy with Russia around. Oh my god!
1: Right? So people who are listening to this might not be familiar with with what happened here. So. Jack goes on, he's testifying in front of Congress. I, I think it's all about like just the censorship on social media is, is what I'm assuming that it was about. I don't remember. But in the background, he has this block clock that MVK and his team there have manufactured, designed, manufactured, and has on the market. I have one actually sitting right in front of me right now. And instead of it, you know, posting like the price of Bitcoin, Jack had his set up to display the value of Bitcoin in dollars per satoshi, right? So or the other way around, Satoshi's per dollar. So he had uh, you know, at the time it might have been like 2,300 sats per dollar, right? And following the appearance on C-SPAN or whatever it was, there was a person on Twitter who's there talking about how Jack Dorsey has the time in Moscow in his behind him. <laughs> so all these Bitcoiners are on Twitter. <laughs> all these Bitcoiners are on Twitter, so good. and they're like no, bro. I'm sorry. It's it's not Moscow time. That is the price of satoshis per dollar. And this guy—he wouldn't believe he. This guy. He, no, no. He doubled down. He doubled, he quadrupled down. He's was he was some kind of journalist, right? Um, I, I don't know. Some, I don't know yeah. what he was, but he had a fairly decent sized following, and so the whole Bitcoin Twitter laser-eyed obnoxiousness swarms this guy and we're like, no, we know the guy that made the clock. And like, in fact, here he is. And then you were in there and the whole bit, and the guy just refused. refused. Oh, yeah. So how does NVK respond to this? Well, I'll tell you how he responds to it. He rolls out a software update so that you can, <laughs> <laughs> and hold on one second. I just want to make sure. Mine is in Moscow time, sir. He rolls out a soft software update that says instead of it saying sats per dollars, it just says Moscow time, and then it has the price in sats per dollar. Still, it's the sats per dollar. But this is this is brilliant. This is your this is how you're having fun. This is how you're you know just like I can't even imagine the marketing that came out of this, and it wasn't like you were planning it or anything. But it was just brilliant. It was hilarious. It's fun. Yeah, you
2: know this is kind of how we see like. All this stuff is, you know, we, we only come to the office, like which we don't have one. This is my hobby, right? Like <laughs> my hobby is to make stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, um, we we yeah, we, we just we just love what we do.
1: It's awesome, and it was uh, it was sure a lot of fun. All right, so NVK, how would you make Bitcoin cheap to transact for the unbanked locations in the world?
2: So, these two cards are what we think is sort of like the game changer, right? I mean, this one has cryptography art on it. We found that like Open Dime is like a fantastic solution. People loved it and people were trying to use them in developing countries, but like it's just too expensive, the device, right? Like, I mean, we just couldn't do it. So, after a lot of sort of sourcing and trying to figure out, we found a chip that could do NFC and the security in the way that we want it at a cost that we could like drastically decrease and also make it reusable.
1: What do you mean by the NFC part?
2: So this is a tap card. It's a contactless Mm -hmm. card. So you just tap it on your phone. And essentially, this is how you can transact Bitcoin. You load the card with Bitcoin. There's going to be a QR on the back. This one is inactivated and that's it. You give this to somebody. They don't have to trust you and they can just take the card. And that's it. Like the
1: transaction is done. It's already in the card. And so if I'm if I'm receiving this payment or I'm say I'm requesting $10 worth of satoshis, right? So I would type in to my device that I want that many sats, which would be what? How many sats would that be? 20,000 sats or something. So I'd put that there and and then you just hold the card up to my device and then I would see that it was paid. How would that what would so, that look like?
2: So, think about it this way. You could just send it to the card. Say the person doesn't even have a wallet, mm-hmm. right? Say you want to give it to your cousin, some Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. But you want to do it in front of him. So you can give him the card. You take a picture of the card with the QR or the top and you send Bitcoin to it. Done. He has Bitcoin. He doesn't need to understand. He doesn't have to have a wallet, nothing, but he has the private key. This is non-custodial. And whenever he wants to spend it, he just taps on an app and puts the pin that's on the back and he spends the card. Wow. Now, imagine you have a stack of these preloaded with like whatever amount you want or denomination you want, right? And you can go and you can say, like, you know what? Like, here's a 10 cards of 100, just a like gift cards, but it's Bitcoin. And then if the person receives these, they can spend it, but then they can generate a new private key on them. They don't get the QR, the QR is fixed to the first one, but like you can do it 10 times. You can have 10 private keys in a card.
1: That's just unbelievable.
2: And the key here is it's going to cost less than $10, right? Say you want to donate this to some cause you want, you know, like you don't have to worry about privacy. There's no privacy implication. And the person receiving this can just give this to the next person. They don't need to spend it, right? So you can have an old UTXO here, an old Bitcoin in this card, just passing around for years and years and years without ever being spent. There's no cost to transact. Now it gets interesting, right? Because you have a Bitcoin private key here, so we made another v- variation of this that this one essentially behaves like a normal wallet, and you can essentially use this for multi sig. So you can just tap it with other wallet, or you can authenticate with your phone. You can authenticate with anything that does NFC, and you just don't need to understand Bitcoin anymore. You know, it's yeah, nice. It's just- we want people to understand it, but like, any it functions off of the web too. So you have a website that if you tap this, these ones are not active, but if you tap it on the phone, a website tells you if the card is valid or not, because you can check the cryptography of it. And in good Quankite fashion is you don't have to trust us either. Well, there's a level of trust, but the the trust is minimized because we use a block nonce as part of the entropy. So it's provable that we don't know the private key. Yeah, It's just that like, you know, Open Dime was fun and all, I'm still going to sell it, but It's just, I couldn't make it scale to like a billion people. This, this is a card with a chip that I can get a billion made. Like, and and that's it. It's like, and the cost is just lower and lower and lower and lower. I can get economies of scale on this that are different. And you can get artists on this. You can, it's a whole different universe uh, of scale that like, I think we can finally serve people that don't necessarily even want to understand Bitcoin.
1: When does this roll out?
2: We actually announced the SDK for devs to start implementing this on wallets. So it's open, right? So it's going to function with any wallet that wants to work with this, essentially. And the software is done mostly for the cards. The cards are functional. I think in just a, like a few months, should be out, wow. out the door. Who knows? Maybe by Bitcoin Miami, already have some, but I just don't want to promise. But it's wow. uh, it's done. That's why we got the laser machine there
1: congrats. That's amazing.
2: It should be fun. We'll send you some when we have it.
1: I'd love to receive it. Load it, of course.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there might be some money transmitter thing there. <laughs> don't load it. <laughs> That's right. He <laughs> does ship on a card. People don't understand, like shipping physical things, it's a problem, right? This goes in an envelope. Like you can ship anywhere in the world. Unreal. It should be fun.
1: Here's a question for you that I think you're one of the few people that I know I can ask this question to and and get a really profound response. How do Bitcoiners harden the network from a transmission and and reception standpoint if internet service providers go down? And, And let me give you an example for people that are listening to this over in Kazakhstan they had the internet service providers turned off they went they're going through a conflict with their politicians and overthrow and i was participating in a spaces chat and one of the guys is like hey you know it's really cool that blockstream has a satellite but all we can really use it for is kind of knowing where the the current block is it's not like we can actually transmit to it it's only on the satellite's broadcasting the blockchain it's sending but it has no receive mechanism so and on top of that he didn't have any type of even if it would he didn't have a satcom set up in order to transmit or any of that stuff so here's a guy who's able to pull 4 cent Per kilowatt hour electricity in his mining facility, which is extremely cheap for anybody who's, you know, mining, but he can't submit blocks because he doesn't have an internet connection. Like, what can be done in order to harden this network and make it more robust so that that type of scenario, which could happen anywhere in the world right now, based on things we're seeing, which we'll get to (laughs) later, I'm sure? How can we harden this network?
2: You know, it's hard to explain to people that you know modern nations cannot just flip the switch okay like you know your g20 countries which is where most of the wealth is anyways uh can't just turn off the internet okay just i just like starting from that premise just so people understand because that's how the banking system works that's how the stock system works that's how every single fortune 500 company that pays all the taxes works so like you just can't just like press a button but let's do the game theory right like so, fine, let's say Canada, we are under dictatorship right now. Let's say, you know, dear leader Trudeau uh, decides to turn off to, to flip a switch, right? So, what does Rodolfo do? Well, I have my, my ham radio set up, right? I can transmit in many different types of, of frequency bands, right? Some are better, some are worse. I do have, you know, the Blockstream satellite is kind of off right now. So, I can receive blocks. If they try to jam Cuban, right, which is the satellite dish sort of ban, which they could, state actors have the capabilities of doing that kind of stuff. I probably would use maybe pigeons with micro SD cards because it's a lot of data. So, so let's assume that I can I can receive, right? So I'm receiving from from the satellite. Now, you know, I check the blocks, I sign a transaction. Then what do I do? Well. I find a counterparty that could relay this transaction for me in a different country, right? Through Hammer radio. I'll transmit to him the the data and he will simply broadcast a transaction for me. And then it would show up from satellite on my desktop saying that it's fine. So, you know, you can resolve this stuff uh, fairly reasonably. Does it create a lot of nonsense? Does it create a lot of friction? Yes. But am I capable of transacting? Yes. Right? And... You know, let's expand this a little more, right? Let's say, for example, you, you know, they're now say jamming HF, right? So the frequencies that go very far. Okay, great. So now, you know, you go closer to the border, and you get some some Americans in Buffalo to point to point their high gain Wi-Fi antennas or all their stuff that the you know the government just don't want to like just just fully jam because you know they're going to jam their own stuff. And you can try to get data out, either not that way, they can broadcast it for me, right? And we do see this in many countries, right? Like that, that do have issues with government, sort of governments trying to, to block things. In a way, I think modern rich countries just can't handle... Like this, they just can't do this kind of nuisances because the economies will just absolutely like implode immediately. But it is a nice exercise. Right? It's nice to know that you're capable of. Maybe there's an there's a catastrophe, right? There's a disaster. Maybe a Pickering atomic plant explodes, and you know, like you still need to sort of maybe receive Bitcoin or send Bitcoin. You can do that, right? I, I mean, the the first responders in any disaster are hand radio operators. <laughs> you know, like they're the first people online, and and. Uh, it's just nice to know that you have a money now that can also sort of flow through the same comms.
1: So in the first uh, scenario that you were talking about as far as sending it to a friend and then they would submit the block for you that you discovered as the correct solution through your guessing, through your mining, in that scenario you're you're suggesting that you would use HF oh. or would you use a different frequency or would you send it via text message like how would you how would you transmit I- that?
2: We don't have a setup that's already pre-set up. Let's put it this way: something that's already like yeah. high availability and essentially high speed. Everything travels at the speed of sound, right? Mm-hmm. It is digital. Sorry, this is the speed of light because it is digital. So th- there is no difference between a, a radio transmission, regardless of power, okay, and the transmission of something going through copper, right? Mm-hmm. So through Ethernet, to so the just so people understand,
1: snow, but. But the the, problem data, the amount mine, of data that's being sent is what's limited. this is
2: the yeah. issue so transmitting a whole block is going to take a while in hf you know through wi-fi through the border will be fairly quick you know maybe it's 3g maybe it's 5g whatever connection you can i think transacting you're totally fine there is a million ways to get in and out miners would have a harder time because They are also competing with others, right? So if they don't get that block out fast, right, somebody else will probably find a block before they broadcast it out.
1: So, and that's that was kind of the essence of my question. And but I, I see where you're going with this because anywhere else in the world it can continue to mine. Is it really an issue? And it's really not, is it?
2: No, I'm a big fan of making blocks smaller. Which is another conversation. <laughs> if blocks were smaller, yeah. then we c- we could just buy old AM radio stations in the whole world and just broadcast Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I mean, you come through your little AM radio and you're done. Like, I, I mean, it's just so simple. But I gotta say, with the existing block size, it's just like it's just on the edge of like what you want to do on those ten minutes in data.
1: But it, again, it, it's really a non-factor for mining, for submitting blocks right. via mining, because you're always going to have somebody in the world that's mining it without, with no restriction.
2: And it is decentralized. I mean, China did that, right? It wasn't through cutting off the internet, but they literally made mining illegal. And then we had a massive hash oh, rate yeah. drop. Bitcoin survived. He actually yeah. went up in price. Easily. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then the mining. Equipment moved. I mean, you know, moving things in and out of places that are under distress is not exactly a new thing. There have been dictatorships and bad places in the world forever, and people somehow find a way.
1: But as far as software that's written, for a country in distress with internet service provider cutting off access, it, it doesn't seem like there is kind of like a go-to software solution, whether you're submitting that over HF or you're doing it via text message that's kind of in place for countries well, that, would, that might be going through a scenario like that, correct?
2: There used to be a number for you to text transactions to, if I remember right, way back in the day, hmm. that would broadcast for you. Hmm. I don't know who ran that number, but it was around. It's just, you know, it, it becomes sort of like unused enough, and then I think this projects die, right? That's why like it, it's kind of like the ham radio stuff, right? So most people have is collecting dust. Uh it's just nice to have it if if you ever need. And but the cool thing about the, the ham stuff is that you don't need specialized software, right? We already have FLDG and a few other sort of like uh digital to analog converters. Got it. Right? That you just you dump a file.
1: And it just right? spews it out
2: yeah i mean
1: in r2d2 type way
2: (laughs) yeah exactly right so so it's exactly that and so if you're a sailor people who do transatlantic sailing and stuff they have what this thing called wind tour and it's essentially email over ham radio oh okay and there is lots of stations around the world that just rebroadcast those emails for them
1: yeah, and, and I don't think people realize the range on HF. I mean, it depends on which band you're going into and the atmospherics and things like that. But you can get three thousand kilometers out of uh, out of the HF. Oh, much more. Band, yeah, I can I can reach Japan. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> so like from, from Canada, you know, yeah. from Canada with very little like power. Gain, yeah. So you know, like it's actually very hard for a state actor to find through like advanced comm recognition, mm-hmm. right? They can normally find people broadcasting, but like a low power, it becomes very hard. You get you get lost in the noise.
1: How long do you think it would take for you to transmit a block in HF if you started it?
2: It depends on the frequency because essentially the higher the frequency, the more bandwidth you have. So, so essentially three the megahertz. faster- the, three megahertz. Yeah. So essentially three megahertz would probably take about seven minutes.
1: Oh, wow. It'd take that long.
2: Yeah. Okay. And then there is like the radio is going to Please stop. Please that, please yeah, that's make assuming this you're going to get the yeah, the whole yeah. transmission comes through. <laughs> no, because yeah. like yeah. the difference between voice and data is that data is constant, right? It's really like the load of the radio is full. The radio is going to be like, "Please make this stop."
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody on that frequency is like, "What is going on?" That's right. All right. Okay. So, we were talking about this a little bit, and I'm trying to keep it as politically agnostic as possible, but it's a little hard with this one. Things up in Canada are getting pretty crazy, so Everybody's familiar with the truckers, the government's response, the government steps in. The part where I think it's just kind of got outrageous is shutting down the bank accounts, going after anybody who's provided a financial contribution to this protest. And it seems like tonight I saw some charts that it's basically a bank run, right? Like, what's going on? Yeah.
2: So we don't know what's going on with the, the banking thing. I mean it was just a glitch between the major Canadian four banks. <laughs> All
1: at the <laughs> you know, same maybe, time. <laughs> yeah,
2: maybe that mainframe you know crashed. I don't know. I, I kinda had a theory. I think that maybe they were running the, the donor list against the, the bank's DB at the same time. And maybe that's what caused that. But you know, banks have a lot of data per day. So like maybe you know, it's unlikely. I don't know. I have no wow. idea what's going on with the banking thing.
1: What an ad for Bitcoin up in Canada. Everybody yeah. up in Canada is going to be a Bitcoiner.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you have like, you know, the deputy minister sort of like going on TV and saying that, you know, essentially we can't do anything about Bitcoin. <laughs> like, you know, thank you for explaining to people why people that have a different opinion may want to not bank. The context of this whole thing here is even like more stupid too, right? Canada is essentially having a deplorable moment. The The political sort of political class here. I don't think I've ever had a non-woke, a uh, big movement happening politically, right? And destructors are not exactly polished, small guys, right? So like, you know, you have this big guys who are not going to budge with this massive rigs honking downtown for three weeks.
1: Has it been that long? Yeah. That?
2: Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. They took the wheels off of some of them. So, oh, and and, and this is-, wow. this is this is amazing. So the towing companies don't want to tow. They're like, yeah, no, yeah. I'm not gonna. I don't want to participate. I don't want anything to do with this.
1: You can't move those rigs without a rig. Are they still towing. there right now? Yes. Oh my god, it's amazing. <laughs> so they cleared the bridge. I understand that they logistically yeah. shut off the bridge to the U.S. Right? Have they cleared that out completely?
2: Yeah. So so that's the weird part, right? So they cleared the Windsor Bridge, which is the The one that has the most sort of amount of of trade through and then there were a few other sort of border crossings right that are your show is mostly american audience so like they would know we have a small little border between canada and us and a ton of a ton of crossings so they closed a few major ones right but you know there was like some guns found in a truck so you know all the truckers are like you know what we're done with this in, in one of the border crossers, it's like, we don't want to be identified with violence. This was supposed to be peaceful. Everybody left. All the borders are cleared, essentially. All that's laughed is the guys honking in front of parliament. <laughs> and it's a party. Like, there's kids. They were actually roasting a pig today. There, there's like a jacuzzi in the middle of the street. <laughs> it, it, it's totally like a party. And the politicians and the people who live in Ottawa are the political class, right? Oh, uh, yeah. They don't know how to handle it. Yeah. So they're calling martial law to handle that.
1: Wow. Yeah. No. It seems like, and and I think maybe even the bigger part of this, especially when you're looking at it from a global context, is that idea is a seed that's now being planted everywhere. I mean, you're you saw it being replicated in France. I don't know how that kind of played out. I just saw that there was clashes inside of Paris. But I think the idea in Israel, you're seeing this seed of an idea. About mandates and basically people wanting their freedoms going back to where they were pre-COVID, starting to really take root around the world. Especially and in, in, again, I'm trying to stay as politically ag- agnostic on this as possible. But especially when you look at the Omicron variant that had just drastically less lethal effects on people. I mean, it was, for all intents of purposes, I, I guess it was very much like the common cold, right?
2: So for your audience audience to get a little bit of context, like in Canada, we had like some pretty draconian rules, right? So for Mm -hmm. example, have vaccine passports to enter restaurants, you know, you can't fly out of the country without a vaccine passport, you know, and truckers really started because, you know, listen, I think like Canada is probably like 80, 90% vaccinated. Yeah. So like, it it was really just like politicians trying to be mean, Mm -hmm. really, like there's essentially no risk statistical risk associated with this. So they essentially wanted to mandate truckers to be vaccinated in order to cross the border. But the problem is though, you know, like they lose their livelihood if they don't want to get vaccinated essentially, right? So. You know, they're like, okay, screw this. We're all done with this, anyways, right? You know, and in Canada, about half the population is for it, half the population is against it. It gets very complicated. We have a and I think you see that most healthcare
1: system. You see most of that uh, from a global context too. Is, in yep. that there's a split. Like And I think that's what really kind of is forcing the banging of the heads together between political parties is you you really do have a split between how people view this. But I guess for me, just personally, if I'm going to speak of my own opinion, is just the virus is mutating. The last variant that came through is, for all intents and purposes, very much like a common cold. And so, to kind of be forcing a lot of these policies and a lot of these procedures, uh, I mean, for God's sake, look at the Super Bowl. Not a single person there with a mask on, right? The mayor himself it? isn't there, but yet the kids go to school who don't even have a concern of catching this thing. Oh, well, They're wearing masks. You know,
2: I have kids. I don't want my kids wearing masks because, yeah. you know, it's bad for them, right? It's, it really is yeah. that simple. They are not at risk. And the way you see it, it's like, can we just all go back to like mind your own businesses and all like, you know, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. If you want to yeah. get a vaccine, get a vaccine. If you don't want to wear, you know, it's just, it's just really so simple. If you're really scared, stay at home. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's forcing you to leave the house. And it's not my, my, my uh, like fabric masks. that's going to prevent you from catching COVID from me anyway. So it's, you know, it, it, I think people sort of like did a power trip and we have to hide inflation somehow. Right. So COVID is a great narrative
0: for that. Back to the show,
1: and boy oh boy, what a conversation that is! So you and I—I don't know that we've ever. I know we've talked online about kind of our points of view on on that particular topic. But how do you view this from a financial lens, from a macro lens? Because it seems like when you got your start, it was much more about the hardware, the kind of the tech, the software of Bitcoin, and then maybe you grew into. This understanding or this knowledge of the broader macro implications of like what's going down is that a good characterization of it, or have you kind of seen the macro background for since you've been in the space?
2: You know, I have no background in finance. I was economically illiterate, you know, before Bitcoin. So <laughs> this all came with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I did grow up in Brazil, right? And and we had multiple currency failures there. And we had uh, bail-ins. We had it all. We had capital controls. And then we had the delusion of the Brazilian real, which was a a fascinating experiment. Anyone who's interested in currency failings or winning, I should read the story of the Brazilian real because it was essentially just everybody uh, magically making it happen. It was absolutely based on zero. like There was nothing backing it. It's just, we're all just going to agree that this is going to be one to the dollar and that's it. And they they made it happen.
1: What was it like (laughs) leading up to that through the failure? like How would you describe socially what was happening? Oh, the
2: Weimar Uh, times. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's like the way I like to say it, it's like it's never the way people think this stuff is. It's sort of like... Because government is still poking, right? And, and you also have like foreign actors sort of like causing interference in a pure signal of the economy, right? So, you know, you have multinational companies that come in and they will have like different, you know, they can pay a lot more. So like, there's a lot of like big signals in the market. But the main thing is the market cannot have a clear sort of like a clear signal of like, you know, matchmaking. Right? So, you're going to have, for example, a lot of people looking for employees, and then you're going to have a lot of people without a job. So, you know, it's the market not finding a way of matching those two, right? Because maybe is that you know, the business cannot pay enough, or the government is mandating weird stuff because it's whatever the times dictate the government to mandate some extra stuff, right? And then you have these other people who may be receiving a check, right? That's like, you know, it's not a great check, but it's like Something. better than leaving the house to go work. Right? We had this with CERB in Canada, right? Like businesses could not find people. The taxi companies here, like they couldn't find taxi drivers, even though the taxi driver would make three times what he made from the check. You start having all this disparity of like matchmaking in the market between labor and employers. You start seeing that with like, like financial products. So for example, you're gonna have low interest rates for some stuff that is like highly disposable, say buying a fridge, in financing a fridge, but then the house price, the house interest for mortgages, at least in Brazil, would have been like super high. But now in Canada, we have, say, like, you know, if you want a city house, (laughs) you can get a variable rate 1.5% a year on a 25-year mortgage, okay? It's insane. With 5% down, that's it. It's insane. Uh, But now they're sort of trying to, to cramp it up a little bit. So they're making so that, you know, you have to do, it's only 5x combined income. Total that they will land you, which is also like makes it impossible for people to buy a house because the house prices are doing. We did twenty eight percent this year house uh, increase in price.
1: Yeah, I've heard up in Canada, uh, housing prices just going well. And the irony for me is there's just so much land. There's so much land. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean
2: you know, it's, but, but, yeah. but it's not that right. The, the the problem, I mean, but but like outside of the cities, like it's worst it's like two, three X the house price, right? Because it was really mispriced before. There was no interest in a country home. Let's put it this way, right? Mm-hmm. Like the market was just not there. Now that people had COVID uh, here and being prisoners in their houses, they were like, you know, I want more property, I want more land, I want to move out of the city. So that demand spiked. So you have like cottages and country homes going two, three X, but those you cannot get a mortgage for mm. in the same way, right? So because the i think the government won't guarantee as much for the bank and then credit cards are going up a lot the the line of credits are going up a lot it's an absolute like insanity with pricing right the beef i mean it's it, so you know like just a popular, 15% the year over year
1: oh it's it's crazy right now the uh the thing that the meme that you see online is everything's clown world is that what it felt like in brazil when it was going oh, yeah. through it? Was it clown world? Is that the best way to just kind of summarize it into a fun or like simple phrase?
2: I mean, Brazil, politically speaking, has always been clown world. Like, I mean, like,
1: <laughs> hey, hey, everywhere in the world.
2: Like, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, the last commie people who were uh, elected for president through a party, I think they spent $300,000 in lobsters. You know, like Brazil like, plays, in, like, politically speaking, in a completely different level of clown world, right? But funny enough, at least there you have a little bit more popularity in uh uh in media so aside from the main big ones like there is more media variety for you to consume so there's like better source of information in canada we don't there's there's less people there's less options and they're all subsidized by the government now because they're all broke in the last 10 20 years so they're all essentially spilling out the message that you know the government is not evil, right? It, mm. it, it's uh, it's fascinating to be watching this. To me, the, the COVID narrative, the, the reason why they don't want to let go is because, y- y- you know, like COVID has been great for them to hide inflation, right? The supply chains, right? That's it. There's absolutely no reason there was all the printing. Canada printed 4X, right? And it was an M2 last year. So the the COVID narrative is absolutely perfect, right? It's like we have this thing that's out of our control. Yeah. Look, everybody's having problems with this. It's not just Canada, yeah, right. Uh, and then print, print, print.
1: All right, uh, smart contracts. Is this something that you see? <laughs> is this something that you see getting built and constructed on top of Bitcoin? Is it something that requires another token? Can you somehow do this on top of Lightning? What are your thoughts on this idea of smart contracts? in Bitcoin.
2: I don't think that the smart contract that people want to have, like the Ethereum style thing, is gonna happen on Bitcoin. Remember, like Bitcoin's purpose is to replace central banking, right? It's on the Genesis block. Like we're not gonna make any single trade-off that will cause any erosion of that immutability of the, the monetary supply, block size, and you know how mining works. So you know it's not gonna change, right? I think Bitcoin. When Bitcoin can provide two smart contracts that no other system can provide is an immutable source of truth, right? So you can anchor stuff you want to do on the Bitcoin blockchain, and, and people try to do that in projects back in the day, but you know it wasn't the time, right? I think the time is starting to come, and people are starting to do stuff, especially with Lightning, right? So you know Lightning in a way is kind of a smart contract. You know it's not like a, a Turing complete. One. Like, but you know, you do have two parties, and you're essentially sending a UTXO between each other without spending it. And there is this district log contracts that are coming that that you can add uh, essentially like a, an oracle to something.
1: What do you, um, What do you think about it, those? Do you think that there's some promise there, or do you think there's just hype?
2: No, it, it depends on what you want to do, right? I, I mean, like. Pretty much everything that's done in smart contracts nowadays, is, it's like essentially mostly centralized and could be done on a database, right? So- Amen, <laughs> amen to that. <laughs> right? I mean, it's Web3 is a big database,
1: right? So-, so But where are all the VCs going to pump their money there?
2: You know, but this this is ultimately the problem, right? Yeah. I mean, Bitcoin disintermediates middlemen and like the VC model of the last, say, 10, 15 years- has been really honed down to be the perfect middleman that creates a monopoly, right? I mean, that's literally Peter Thiel's thesis, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. It is. It literally is. So so and it makes sense. It's, a, it's a great thesis to make money. But it, you know, Bitcoin sort of removes that, right? So the the smart contract stuff is possible and, and it's happening, especially with landing, those sort of features. And, and and I think as true need, true utility comes, Right, I think we can sort of like resolve those issues with Bitcoin being the 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 original source of truth or at least the place where you dump your liquidity because you don't want to like money that I hold in Bitcoin I go to bed and I sleep, right? If I was holding Ethereum, (laughs) I probably wouldn't sleep, right? So you know all these contracts and all these people will still sort of like find their place of resting, right? Where they park the capital they made, the profit they made in in Bitcoin, right? So how that plays out is is interesting, especially with the stable coins and all that stuff.
1: I'm sure they're rolling 99 dice. <laughs> <laughs> what does the UX in this space look like in five or seven years from now? This was a question that Marshall had asked some of these questions. I thought these were really good questions. So like your cold card today, and just most people with a hardware wallet. When I'm thinking like where we're at in five to seven years from now, I think Apple, Google, some of these major players are going to be entering the space. So what does the UX look like? How do they integrate into this space and do it in a way that still allows self-custody? Because I think that there's going to be a huge demand for that. What do you see this being?
2: it's a kind of like a funny question because thinking about Bitcoin seven years from now, it's like,
1: it's, (laughs) I mean, what happened in the last, ten? I mean, yeah, just look at what happened in the last seven years. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah.
2: So first it's like, you're never going to be able to trust, right? The, the Apple phone or the Google phone is just, just, you can't, right. It's all closed down. It's all non-verifiable. It's extremely complex. Like even if you could trust them, right? you simply cannot trust a general purpose computer because the attack surface is just ginormous, right? What I think they'll be great at is providing you with a safe wallet that is for small amounts of money. But remember, your carrier can still remote access your phone, okay? So they could maybe remote cancel your wallet, right? So you can't if it's based on their chips and all that stuff, right? But even with the wallets on the phone, I mean, technically they can't, right? They have access to the baseband that shares memory with the, with the phone. So they could technically see you generating the private key. So you simply cannot trust. So what we are doing is we're making this uh, essentially NFC cards, right? That you can just tap on the phone. The security profile and trade-offs are different than quote card, right? This is not for your eternal yeah. wealth. Essentially, you're going to go like, oh, I want to sign this transaction, right? Like send money, you know, like to buy a phone, right? So it's like a like real money, but not your wealth. You know, you just tap on the back of the phone and sign the transaction. Or it's maybe multi-sig. The wallet has one key that has maybe, um, you know, I only allow you to spend, uh, say, $1,000 per day. Either because dad, dad said it or because you said it so that if he gets robbed, it's not an issue, and you use the card to co sign that, right? You're going to see a lot of NFC coming. Square announced they're going to do uh, NFC. The Mark IV has NFC on it. I think that's how I see a lot of the stuff going the next, say, five years, right? It's, it's the NFC as a means of an easy, quick UX. I think that. Once Taproot starts to get more interesting in scripting, we might be able to de-risk devices by having more complex threshold signatures between them. Then, you know, you don't have to trust the phone as much. So maybe one day cold card doesn't exist anymore, right? Maybe we just, that's 10 years, 20 years from now, the scripting became so, so smart and so good and so de-risked that like you could have 50 devices and then it's all sort of spread, right? And it's not a concern. But we're definitely far from that.
1: And so, for people who aren't maybe understanding what you what you're getting at from the technical front, so similar to like how you have three different Apple devices, and then it's gonna it's gonna ping the three of them, and and yep. you're secure. So you're talking it, it because of Taproot and because of the scripting that can be done through that update that just went through with Bitcoin. You think that maybe they could get to something like that in the future?
2: Yeah, it, I think there's limits, like being very realistic. But I think a lot can be done, mm-hmm. and and a lot can be sort of reimagined and sort of like refought and yeah. more. Maybe upgrades come, uh, but I think it's possible to do a lot more on the middle ground, right? I think. When you're talking about generational wealth, you're talking about like real money, like the the level of security, the level of uh, a forward error correction, forward thinking needs to be much greater, right? That's why I want to trust minimize like a very simple device that is like fully verifiable and you know, you do your dice, you know, because we simply don't know. And you might be dead, right? Your kids might have this private key that you generated, right? Maybe their grand grandkids have the same private key still. Right, so you know, making sure you are doing your two hundred fifty-six bits and and sort of like like in their good bits that, that part of roll your legacy roll your or you, dice, exactly. <laughs> um,
1: I, I think your great grandkids uh, will be proud of you.
2: <laughs> yes, it's like it didn't get it robbed.
1: How do you think about security's concerns of the components of the hardware? When you think about the upstream supply chain, so you're receiving components. Uh, you know, maybe some are more complex than others, but to think that you have absolute control of everything that you're kind of sticking in any type of hardware these days is just, you know, there's no way. So how do you, how do you think through that? I know that all your manufacturing is done there in Canada. But I know you're probably receiving some parts from China or wherever components inside of your inside of your hardware. So how do you think about that? The upstream risks.
2: Yeah, we, we receive parts from all over the world. Uh, it's very simple. We don't trust anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. So
2: assume it's compromised. Right. That that's our sort of like way of thinking about this stuff. It's just you assume everything is compromised. You essentially don't trust the parts. So for example, we store your seed in the secure element. But you know, we all know the state actors probably have a backdoor that's secure And also nothing is unhackable, right? So give it enough resources, somebody will get in eventually, right? I mean, Ledger spent, you know, like half a million dollars in gear and probably like a million dollars in like just staff like breaking the cold card mark two. The three resolve the problems. But you know, it's a matter of time and somebody's gonna figure out a way. Is it repeatable and all that stuff? That's a different story, right? Like good luck. But the key here is. So for example, the seed is encrypted with a key from the other manufacturer's chip, and then it's stored in this manufacturer's chip. So now we're playing two chips against each other, right? Mark IV is gonna have another secure element. (laughs) Now you have to break three parts, right, to get two secrets. And that's not even counting the passphrase and everything else you can do and you should do but like we're just trying to play in a way that like we're raising because nothing is impossible but we're just raising the time and cost and failure of attacks so high
1: right that essentially it becomes silly and you're for, not for even, them to try to And you're it. not even talking multi-sig right you're not right, even, exactly you're no, not even talking a multi-sig is, wallet yeah
2: this is like plain jane yeah wallet right it's still fairly secured right because remember you also want to defend the firmware, right? Because you don't want the firmware, that's why like having a secure element is so much more than just the seed protection per se, right? You want to make sure that the firmware is not tampered with because that firmware could lie to you and the firmware can see your seed when it's operating, right? To protect all those secrets, we want to create this sort of like wacamo game that has high failure rate for the attacker. And that's sort of like how we play the game theory on the design of the device and how we don't trust supply chains. It really is that simple because you can't. Yeah. No.
1: Hey, speaking of which, how? Have, what do you think about the supply chains right now? Are you seeing them getting any better or are you still seeing delays in deliverables?
2: Well, I mean, everything started to get slow on the beginning of COVID because of like, everybody said, you know, I don't want to take public transportation. So everybody decided to buy a car. Right. This was early oh. 2020, right And the same chips that we use car manufacturers use mm. right? And uh, you know they get priority. but uh, we're pretty good at buying parts and we bought you know for the next uh, device we bought uh, parts for the whole year worth of manufacturing like we can just make them now. But it, it sucks because you know China was super delayed with like just logistics per se. So like a lot of our stuff doesn't come through ships, so we don't have to worry too much about that, except when we buy big machines. So, but because the container ships were all slow, everything got moved to airplane. So now the airplanes are getting sent with orders that shouldn't go in an airplane. <laughs> so if you want to buy, say, uh, drill press punches, right, it used to be like cheap, and, and they come on a ship. And you know, max three months you have them, right? You know, you were starting to look at like six months a year, mm-hmm. and you're not going to send these things in an airplane mm-hmm. because it's going to make it cost five times. Yeah, we had to buy this big laser machine to etch the the new NFC cards. It's like a reasonably sized industrial machine, right? You know, you'd normally come on a on a ship, cheap. We had to put it on an airplane, and that was a fortune. <laughs> the airplane ride was more expensive than the machine.
1: <laughs> Uh, All right. The last question I got for you here, when we think about this kind of a generic one, I'm talking about Bitcoin price action, we go through these big run-ups and it seems that there's some type of narrative or something that kind of drives, uh, whether it's the halving event or it's Facebook's trying to do their own Libra. We saw a massive run-up from that is there a catalyst that you kind of see that's going to play out or something that you think is going to drive the next big wave of people coming inbound into the space? I mean, I guess you could even argue that this stuff happening in Canada right now could be a a potential catalyst, but is there anything that you kind of see playing out that you think is going to drive a lot of that?
2: I mean, Russia just announced that they like Bitcoin now, right? So, uh, can you imagine if Russia tells Europe, so do you know all the energy you need from us? Well, we want to get paid in Bitcoin. I mean, that that would be. I'm like, with you. It, it's 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 like, insane. No, it's over. It's like full capitulation of fiat. Right? I mean, just because of the drive of Bitcoin, the, and then you have like the self fulfilling cycle, right? Of like people see the price go up, they go into this thing too, and just and then there is the Russian story with the ammonium nitrate too, right? Yeah, the sixty percent producer, and you know those guys want to be off the dollar. Right. And then you have, you know, the the thing between China and Russia, it's a different story. They're going to be happy to print their own monies and send to each other there. You know, I, I think if we have more of these sort of Canada style banking, like illegal seizure of money, I mean, you know, people are going to smarten up and not have money anymore in these banks. Right. Because a lot of people don't understand that like the foreign bank account is not what it used to be. Like nowadays, all these banks are on their... Like they they all talk to to daddy IRS, right? Like there really is very little escape for that, except for stable coins. Stable coin is the new sort of like Swiss bank account, right? For people that want dollars. And a lot of that flows through Bitcoin, not because it's running on top of Bitcoin, but flows through Bitcoin. And I think the demand for that has been insane. It's going to grow a lot more and then a lot more. And then there is inflation. It's almost like there's no aspect of, of life of uh, economy or or politics or it does not point to a essentially event horizon for Bitcoin, right? I mean, like, this is just nothing. I mean, I I look outside, right? I talk to people, everything just points to a Bitcoin demand, just based on, you know, the economics and everything else that society has done for the last 100 years. It's just no escaping that, you know, like, thankfully we have Bitcoin.
1: Amen to that. Well, if if there's any Canadian politicians listening to this conversation with NVK and myself, I just want to put out there, he makes the best dice and makes the best calculators in Canada. <laughs> NVK, I want to thank you for coming on the show. If people want to find out more about you, want to find out about your products, give them a handoff where they can learn more.
2: Go for the products, go to coinkite.com and then on Twitter, we have a, a million accounts there. At CoinKite is one of them. And then uh, you can find me at NVK, November Victor Kilo.
1: <laughs> we will have links to all this in the show notes for folks. If you if you don't remember or whatever, just go to the show notes. You can click on the links that we'll have there. And NVK, thank you so much for making time. This was long overdue and I thoroughly enjoy learning from you. You're just such a wealth of knowledge. So thanks for coming on the show.
2: Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Great questions.
1: If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin specific shows come out every Wednesday and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, Thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next
0: week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses or forums, go to the investorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.